We've got a very special Flashback Friday episode for you this week. We are re-airing an episode of Kate's Take. This five-time award-winning show first appeared on the D20 Crit Network before being reloaded and produced by Gals Guide. As you may know, Kate Chaplin was my stage name. And from 2013 to 2017, I worked on this fantastic podcast where I took a film that influenced my life for good, bad, or ugly, and I dissected it to show you the hidden lessons within. Now, many of the links to the Kate's Take podcast have been lost to the digital dust, but because it's movie month, we thought we would share a few of these lovely episodes with you. This week, we are re-airing the top five films directed by women. Originally aired September 27th, 2017, this episode explores Hollywood diversity opportunities, the directed by women movement, and how Wonder Woman has elements of the Wizard of Oz. Enjoy a slice of Kate's take on this Flashback Friday episode. Welcome to Kate's Take from galsguide.org. Each week I talk about a movie that has shaped my life, and I'll teach you how to dissect a movie and find the life lessons hidden within. September is Directed by Women Awareness Month, and all month long at Gals Guide, my wonderful network home, we have been talking about women in front of and behind the camera. There's a great article of 30 streaming films that are available that are directed by women, and it's broken down by Netflix, Amazon Prime, and Hulu. I highly recommend you checking it out. DirectedByWomen.com is a wonderful website and grassroots movement that encourages more people to celebrate the vast diversity of female directors of the past as well as today. They have a massive database of films directed by women to search and enjoy. They encourage public gatherings as well as private binge watching of your favorite female director films in the month of September. So why is this important to me? Well, until spring of last year, I was a filmmaker. I produced 17 films, and I won nine awards along the way. I have been asked to give talks on what it's like for a female director, as well as the statistics and the landscape that female filmmakers face. I retired from film to put a focus on Gal's Guide, but I love film. I will always love film. I just don't think I am that good of a filmmaker, and I know it's a better use of my time to support other filmmakers than to participate in the vast collection of movies that are out there. Basically, I just decided to become a fan. Another reason why this is important to me is that I learned quite a bit about life in movies. Like any good art, it's a mirror reflection of our culture pointed back at us. Through characters and conflicts, we learn different ways on how to live a human life. We learn what scares us and what drives us. And if you're willing to tap into the energy of a character for a few hours, it's a test run and a roadmap for life. You might not be taking the punches like Rocky, but if you immerse yourself and you connect with the punches of life that life gives you, you can take Rocky's advice. It ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward, how much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, my use of a Rocky quote here is purposeful because most of the movie heroes that I had growing up in the 80s were men. Rocky, Luke Skywalker, Charlie Chaplin, Marty McFly, and Ferris Bueller. The films were directed by men and written by men, but I still learned from them. I saw a connection on how to live a human life. 
but sometimes I do wonder if it set me up for failure. The female characters in stories that I saw in my youth before the fateful year of 1992 were not the center of the story. Few were solving the film's main problem. That was left to men. This has an impact, mostly subconsciously, on you if you're female. Seeing stories where the problem solvers are men had an effect in me to reject the feminine or see it as weak, and that wasn't healthy. I would also accept it if others saw me as weak or unskilled or talented or not able to problem solve because deep down I felt that was normal and that I would always be less than. If women are the center of the story, it was based around the man that they loved and if they loved them back. So the big exception to this was, of course, The Wizard of Oz and sometimes Princess Leia, but not always. And if you're a longtime listener to the show, you know my Princess Leia complications because I go into great detail in the Star Wars episodes. I also will mention that I did not see the Alien movies until I was in my 20s, and I do still have mixed feelings about the female power in those movies. So with it being directed by Women Month, I have looked through the films that have inspired me, and it wasn't easy to narrow it down. But I got the list to the top five films and some honorable mentions. So it started as a list of 100 films. The deciding factor was, just as it always is for this show, is a movie that influenced my life and taught me something tangible that I could take with me. I didn't look for films that were specifically about women, just directed by women. So let's get into the list. Number five is Brave, directed by Brenda Chapman and Mark Andrews. Brave is a magical and surprising film that asked me to reflect on the kind of mother I wanted to be. It asked me to keep my mama bear tendencies in check, but to embrace them when I needed them. The inner mother bear, the one that can be violent, angry, and really protective, is always waiting. I actually have constant nightmares about defending my children from danger, and most times I'm putting my life before theirs without thought, only on instinct and on anger. Brave also taught me about projection, that too many filters that we see through distance us from seeing a person with hopes and dreams and fears. It's not until Merida's mom is transformed into a bear that she can remove the projection that she has on her mom and see her in a new way. They find a new way to communicate, to help each other, and to learn from one another. I learned the many facets of fate from Brave. Many of us feel a strong need to be seen as a unique person and not grouped together compared to others or beholden to a group or a person. In Merida's case, it was the through line of having to marry. But when she breaks out of her princess dress and says, I'll be shooting for my own hand, it's a wonderful message of mentally and physically breaking free of social constraints, as well as the female empowerment that we are not solely identified by being a love interest. When we have control over our own fate, we feel like the choices we make are our own. There's a wonderful metaphor in the film as fate as a tapestry. Merida says in the opening narration, fate is woven together like a cloth so that one's destiny intertwines with others. It's the one thing we search for or fight to change. Some never find it, but there are some who lead. I learned to think of fate like a tapestry. Each tiny thread is not strong on its own, but when it's woven with others, not only is it stronger, but it can create an image. Now, each thread is what makes us us, the picture of us on a tapestry 
is the threads of our ancestry and those who have come before us, our friends, our beliefs, our experiences. They each are a thread at making us. Woven together, stronger together, our fate and our path is woven in our connection to others. And I think of parenting as providing as many threads as I can for my daughter's tapestry of life, knowing that others are going to contribute as well to make it stronger, to make it more vibrant, but that it's up to them on what the image will be. And because of this film, I have the bravery of a mama bear to know that whatever their tapestry image is, it's going to be marvelous. If you want more of my take on Brave, I go into far more detail in episode 56 of Kate's Take that I did for D20 Crit. So number four on my list is You've Got Mail, directed by Nora Ephron. So released in 1998, there are five warning cries in this film that we did not listen to. The first one was the end of Western civilization as we know it. It was summed up by Frank, played by Greg Kinnear. Uh, citing that the state of Virginia had to have Solitaire removed from their computers because they weren't getting any work done. Oh, if Frank had only knew that Facebook and Twitter were just around the corner. The second warning cry is the death of personal letters. And on the chopping block is the death of conversation-based emails. Kathleen, played by Meg Ryan, pretty much sums up what would be the rise and the true staying power of social media. She says... The odd thing about this form of communication is that you're most likely to talk about nothing rather than something. But I just want to say that all this nothing has meant more to me than so many somethings. The third warning cry is Starbucks. Tom Hanks's rant as Joe is still true nearly 20 years later. Knowing the Starbucks lingo is an exercise in self-esteem that we gladly pay $5 for. And if you're wondering, my current drink is a venti almond milk mocha frappuccino with no whip. I went vegan. Fourth, the VCR debate, which is now actually the DVR debate or the streaming debate. Now, Frank in the movie hates all technology, but he sums this one up nicely. He says the whole point of the VCR is so that you can miss what's on television. And the whole reason for being out is to miss what's on television. So now we worry that social media, not necessarily the water cooler, is going to deliver spoilers on the show that we missed while we were out having a life and seeing people face to face. Add to that weekends are starting to have a common theme of binging something, it becomes a little bit worrisome. The last warning cry from You've Got Mail that we didn't listen to was the death of the mom and pop stores by work of the big bad chain stores, i.e. the secondary plot of the movie. Kathleen's bookstore that her mother started is being pushed out by the new Barnes & Noble-like chain with massive square footage, discounts, gathering places, and legal addictive stimulants. For what I really connected to in this movie was the theme of being personal. Joe says often, it's not personal, it's business. And when Kathleen responds, what is that supposed to mean? I'm so sick of that. All that means is that it wasn't personal to you, but it was personal to me. And it's personal to a lot of people. And what's so wrong with being personable anyway? Whatever something is, it ought to begin by being personal. There are scenes in the movie that are meant to juxtapose this theme of personal. Kathleen's scenes evoke personal relationships and fun. Joe's scenes are money and power focused, and one life seems a lot happier to me. But the part that really stuck out at me, the part that I still think on to this day, is when Kathleen writes an email to Joe, and she says, I had a small life, 
well, valuable, but small. And sometimes I wonder, do I do it because I like it or because I haven't been brave? So much I see reminds me of something I read in a book when shouldn't it be the other way around? I took those words to heart and I have been trying to be brave ever since. I made 17 films because of that line. I published four books because of that line. I started Gal's Guide and I keep doing this show because I believe you can be personal and brave and helpful. I have many moments where I am not brave and I recognize all too much that my life is small, but also valuable to those around me. If you dig You've Got Mail, I actually go into it a lot more in depth in episode three that I did for D20 Crit Network. So number three on my list is Whale Rider, directed by Nikki Caro. Whale Rider is a film that is linked so closely to me as an allegory for female filmmakers. In fact, it was the film that stopped me from hiding in writing and starting to actually make films. You've Got Mail taught me to try to be brave, but it took a while. But the line in Whale Rider of you knew this wasn't for you, but you kept coming back, it really hit me hard because I had heard it many times in my life. When I was 10, I told my father I wanted to be in film. He said, you can't. All actresses are prostitutes. When I told a teacher I wanted to be a director, I was told immediately that I couldn't be a director. It was for 40 and 50 year old men. When I was 16, I enrolled in an improv class and I was told by my teacher to forget filmmaking and be an actress because I just might see some money in that. When I was 17, I was told by my drama teacher that I would never succeed in filmmaking. When I was 19, I was told by my college professor that I would never make it as a filmmaker in the Hollywood studio system because I was female. And so I quit school. For the next 10 years, I wrote, I studied, and I tried to find bravery and a path. I read nothing but film books, and I studied movies, and behind the scenes, I learned mythology and story structure. I took community classes, and I kept quiet, and I kept copious notes. A few weeks before turning 30, I finished two short films. That 10-year time of studying felt very much like Pakia's time watching her grandfather teach the firstborn boys the tradition of the whale rider and not accepting that the next one could be female. Her line in the big school play kills me every time she says it. If the knowledge is given to everyone, then we can have lots of leaders, and soon everyone will be strong, not just the ones who have been chosen. Because sometimes, if you're the leader... You need to be strong, but you can get tired. It makes me think beyond my own struggles, but to the film industry. If opportunities are given to greater diverse filmmakers, we can have more stories that will add to the great tapestry of our lives and our lessons and the past that are available. Seeing more filmmaking leaders beyond the white male path allows for more inspiration for another generation of filmmakers, as well as stories that strengthen our human compassion. We need more diversity. Because if we have one, they do get tired. And one diverse filmmaker is generally not backed by a studio. And it takes so much time to get another project out. Take for one example, Catherine Bigelow. After being the first woman to win an Oscar for Best Director, it was four years before Zero Dark Thirty. And then another five years before Detroit. She's not the only diverse director with that many years between projects. They aren't all Zack Snyder or Christopher Nolan with projects every year or every other year. 
We, the movie audience, deserve diverse stories, and the industry can't continue its small pool of diverse filmmakers and say that it's enough because it isn't. There might be a few of you who hear about a studio offering diversity training programs. Well, here is my take on that. Shame on them. We have many diverse men and women who are killing it right now in the indie film scene. They don't need training. They need a budget and a green light from studios. We don't need contests. We need studios to have the balls to decide that films about women, people of color, immigrants, various sexual orientations, and passions are shown as heroes in stories. I was taught that film is a mirror reflection on the world, and we're missing out on what it could be, a vehicle for human connection. Will Ryder gave me the metaphor of why that human connection is important, and it was found in The Rope. The rope metaphor is sprinkled throughout the film. It starts with Pakia learning from her grandfather that the rope to start the boat is little bits twisted together to make it strong. He explains that's what family is. But when the rope breaks, grandfather gets another one. In other words, he discards the family. But Pakia doesn't. She weaves it back together and she starts the boat. And she's called dangerous. I think of the rope as weaving together what is male and what is female and that there is strength in each, but it is stronger when we are all woven together. If you dig Whale Rider, I do go into more detail in episode 25 for D20 Crit. Number two is Wonder Woman, directed by Patty Jenkins. Now, I'm going to preface this by saying that the only reason why Wonder Woman is not my number one is because I haven't lived with it long enough to allow it to soak into my being and have it show me just how it's going to influence me. I know it already has influenced me, but I also know it still is. There are sequences and lines and images in Wonder Woman that frankly I am still processing because the emotion strikes such a nerve that I almost back away from it because it's so powerful that I don't know what I'll do or how I'll feel if I unlock it. The No Man's Land sequence is so visceral that I struggle with how to put it into actual words of its personal meaning for me. On a surface level, I see the bullets flying off of her shield and her standing her ground as if it's internet comments. And I know that's silly, but after Ghostbusters hate, I just really can't help but use that imagery to get me through it. It also taps into that feeling when I gave my first talk of what it's like for a female director. When that was announced, a small percentage of my filmmaking community turned their backs on me, saying to my face, how dare I say it's any different. The bullets that they fired were on my character, but I held firm because I could see in the faces of the people that came that it was important to them, and I could see later in the actions of others that the message did in fact get through. But there is still something much more in that sequence. Diana decides and believes in herself that she can do something to save people. She also doesn't do it alone. After drawing the Germans' fire, her own team, as well as that of the Allies, take action. They defend her, they make up ground, and they win that one victory. It takes one person to stand up, but it takes a team to make a difference. The team in Wonder Woman is something that I did not expect to see, but I love so much because they were diverse. You had Samir, who is Arabic, Chief, who is Native American, Charlie, who's Scottish, all alongside American Steve Trevor. You know what it reminded me of? The Wizard of Oz. 
Dorothy follows the Yellow Brick Road on a quest to ask the wizard to send her home. Diana goes on a quest to find Ares to stop the war. Dorothy meets up with the Scarecrow and the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion, and by working together, they defeat the Wicked Witch of the West, and they learn the truth about the Wizard of Oz. Dorothy teams up with Steve and Samir and Chief and Charlie, and they work together to stop Dr. Poison, who at one point is called a witch, and to learn the truth about Ares. If you look at the first edition cover of the book, you'll actually notice that there is a bigger title. It's The Wonderful Wizard of Oz by Frank Albaum. And you'll see that the word wonder sticks out. It's in all capitals, and it's hyphenated in a weird way so that wonder is on one line and full is on another. It's interesting when you think of it in its connection with Wonder Woman. I've always clung to The Wizard of Oz as a feminist story because it showed me men and women working together as equals. And I'll actually go into further detail when I cover The Wizard of Oz in a later episode. But in this dynamic in Wonder Woman of men and women working together, it was such a fantastic surprise. Now, it was one woman in a team of guys surrounded by male soldiers, and there is a borderline Trinity complex problems that are happening. However, because the movie starts on Themyscira, it doesn't feel like that. So Themyscira is so well done on a visual level with women of all sizes and races working together in markets and training each other as warriors. It's a magical place because none of them have been told that they are second class. No one knows a history of women being in the same classification as children and the mentally physically disabled. They saw each other as equals. So when Diana enters man's world, she continues to see others as equals. It feels like a burden and a terrible history is lifted from your shoulders when you allow yourself to imagine this world. Unless, of course, you're Diana, who is number one, the only kid on the island, and number two, wants to train as a warrior, but is forbidden for a while and has to train in secret. So I'm sure it had moments of suckage for her. But it's also a story and it does need conflict to move the plot and character along. Before I hit in further detail Wonder Woman next month, I want to leave you with this. It's about believing in your abilities that is a universal message. And Tyope warns Diana that she's doubting herself when she's young and when she's training. And when she takes Antiope's dying words to heart, she goes and retrieves the god killer sword. And for a brief moment, she has doubt. And then she climbs the castle walls. When Steve tells her in the trench at No Man's Land, there's nothing you can do about it. We can't save everyone in this war. Diana decides to believe in her abilities and the team rallies around her. Now they do talk about whether or not they believe that Ares is behind the war. Chief and Samir believe her. Charlie doesn't and Steve isn't sure. I will keep this spoiler free, but Diana does have to believe not only in herself, but in her beliefs to see her through. Now, before I get into my number one, here are my honorable mentions. These were films that almost made it onto the list, but I wanted to nail it down to five. Uh, Selma by Ava DuVarnay. Absolutely love this movie. Whip It by Drew Barrymore. Wayne's World, Penelope Spears. Uh, there was also four documentaries that were also really, really uh, struggling to get onto the list. I was really torn with documentaries. But I decided I wanted to stick with films, uh, but I thought, well, I'm going to give these a shout out as well, because they really changed the way that I think about the world. 
The first one is Wonder Women, The Untold Story of American Superheroines by Christy Guevara Flanagan. I saw this at a film festival and Gal's Guide actually screened it as our Directed by Women series last year. And it's a absolutely wonderful film that not only talks about Wonder Woman, but it also talks about the women's movement as well. To get further into the women's movement, I highly recommend She's Beautiful When She's Angry, directed by Mary Dore. This covers the 1970s women's movement, and it's wonderfully done. The next one is 13th, again by Ava DuVernay. That girl is killing it, and I am loving the projects that she puts out. 13th really changed the way that I view the prison system. Wonderfully insightful and highly recommended documentary. The last one is Embrace, directed by Taryn Brumfit. This is part of the body movement, and it's a fantastic documentary by an Australian filmmaker who talks about body image that women face. Very well done. Highly recommend it. And now, my number one film, directed by a woman, A League of Their Own, by Penny Marshall. So I was 15 years old when A League of Their Own was released, and that was that fateful year of 1992. There was a lot of coverage on it in entertainment shows, mostly because Madonna was in it, and she was arguably the biggest thing at that time. Not only was she on the show's circuit talking about A League of Their Own, but also Penny Marshall was. Penny Marshall was the first filmmaker of my gender that I saw on a film set and that I saw talking about directing. It simply changed my life. I saw her being the thing I didn't think I was allowed to be, and it was unbelievably freeing. I needed to see her directing Tom Hanks and Gina Davis and setting up the shots and calling action and talking about the stories. That gave me a visual path for myself to follow. But there's also this incredible movie. It weaves together two things that I really didn't know would be on my path that I am on now, and that is untold history and women working together. I, like many people who didn't grow up during World War II, did not know that baseball was in trouble during the war. I knew that players like Jackie Robinson and Joe DiMaggio were soldiers during the war. I had no idea that women would come into play. Each gal in the movie I related to in one way or another, and they're all so different, yet they have one thing in common, the love of baseball. They also were all told they weren't good enough to play because they were a girl. We got Evelyn with her kid, and she's a songwriter. Shirley Baker, who at the start of the movie can't read, and May teaches her how to read a romance novel. We have May, who is a dancer in a CD joint, and her friend Doris was the bouncer at that joint. We got Ellen Sue, who is Miss Georgia and a singer. Alice, who is the superstitious one. Betty, whose husband is away at war and a big fan of Jimmy Dugan. Now, some girls' backstories are more developed than others, It paints this picture of gals I want to hang out with, including the three African-American ladies who threw in that wild ball. Dora sums it up on the bus after talking about the other boys treating her like I was some sort of a weird girl or strange girl or not even a girl because I could play. And I believe them too, but not anymore. I mean, look at us. There's lots of us. I think we're all all right. The way that Dot and Kit protested the scout not bringing Marla to the tryouts because she wasn't a traditional beauty anchored me into the movie. That uniform they were forced to wear, the rules they had to live with, the marketing that they would still be ladies, it made me want to stand up and cheer for all of them. 
I love the sisters dynamic in the movie. I love that it's played out in a baseball setting and that setting is part of our history that I didn't know. I didn't know that women had one part in saving baseball during wartime. And also it gave a little slice of normalcy during a really trying time. Jimmy Dugan also gets an incredible and inspirational arc throughout the movie as well. At first, he doesn't plug in, saying, ballplayers? I don't got ballplayers. I've got girls. But he ends the movie turning down a AAA coaching job to continue coaching the Peaches. There are many great lines in the movie that come from Jimmy, and many of them are funny. But it's this one that I will pass on at any chance I think is appropriate. When Dottie is saying that baseball got too hard and that she's going to quit, Jimmy says, it's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. It's the hard that makes it great. And that's an amazing life lesson. So here's a personal one for me. When I was researching for the full episode, which is number 26 on D20 Crit, ironically, the same number for this show that is now on Cal's Guide. So this connection with this movie is really related to the number 26 for some reason, and I don't know why. Anyway, when I went to watch the movie for the episode, I couldn't find my copy. I must have lent it to somebody. So I went to go buy another one, but all of my local stores did not have it. And I was on a crunch time and I couldn't order it online. So I went and I checked my local library in hopes that they would have it. I'm looking in the L's. And there in the L's is a movie that I wrote and produced called Leah, Not Leia. My daughter was with me and she recognized it first. And we were so pumped that my movie was sitting on the library shelves. But we couldn't find a league of their own. So we went back to the computer. The computer said that it was in stock. So I went back and I looked harder. And there it was next to the movie that I had made. Never in a million years did I think a movie that inspired me so much to see myself as a director was sitting on the shelf next to a film that I had made. It was humbling. It was a full circle journey and I will always remember it. So that's my list of the top five films directed by women that have influenced my life. I look forward to many, many more. Supporting films directed by women is a focus for not only the month of September, it can be celebrated any month of the year. Statistically, films directed by women aren't given the same marketing push at the box office. A small percentage of films directed by women break into the top 100. So you have to do your due diligence as a movie audience and seek them out. Don't believe me? Go to your DVD shelf right now. Find how many films you own are directed by women. I'll bet the percentage will surprise you. It did when I did it. Make the mindful effort to support not only women, but all diverse filmmakers who can teach you about our shared humanity, because it'll make us all stronger and more woven together. Till next time. Kate's Take is brought to you by Gal's Guide to the Galaxy. For more information, including links to our Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, visit galsguide.org. Thank you.